Hi everyone, it's your chef Philippa Ballantyne here. Now, I hope you've been enjoying the erotica a la carte meals. And I hope that you've been tuning in every month. Generally, I don't ask for much. I like writing, I like podcasting, and I like bringing you saucy tales. But I'm just going to take a moment now to get a little serious. Most of you probably know by now that T. Morris's wife passed away last week. This means that T. will be raising his daughter alone. She's only five years old and a wonderful bright spark just like T. Her nickname on the podcasting world is Sonic Boom. That gives you an idea. So a bunch of us podcasters are getting together to help T and to create a trust fund for Sonic Boom. I'll be posting a link on the Erotica a la carte website where you can go and donate. And please, if you have any money to spare, then please do. T has been a great friend to this show. He's written stories for this show. He's lent his voice to a remarkable number of saucy stories that you've probably tasted and undoubtedly enjoyed. So it's time to give a little back. The other thing you can do is go to theboomeffect.org. Here you will find items, wonderful things that have been donated by writers and podcasters who have been affected by the boundless energy and wonderful enthusiasm that is T. Morris. On the 27th of February 2010, a bunch of us will be getting together to auction these items in a webathon. Yes, there'll be all sorts of fun and shenanigans going on because this is to celebrate the life of a wonderful five-year-old girl and to support her and give her opportunities in the future. I've been so impressed by the way the community has rallied round, and I really hope that they continue to do that because this grief and the effects of this event extend way past this week. Anyway, we're going to move on to the story now and we're going to enjoy some saucy goodness from Chris Lester of Metamore City. No dream is never just a dream just a dream just a dream just a dream no dream is never just a dream just a dream just a dream no dream is never just a dream welcome to erotica a la carte where you choose the ingredients and i make the story These sensual tales from the South Pacific are not work-safe, and definitely not child-safe. They contain scenes of a sexual nature. Turn back now if you think this may offend you. The guest chef this week is Chris Lester of Metamore City podcast fame. He's known for his forget-me-not blue eyes and his other moniker, which I think T. Morris gave him, which is the saucy bitch of podcasting. So we know that whatever he brings out of the kitchen is going to be delicious. So take a seat by the fire, pull up a plateful of Chris Lester goodness, and enjoy. Just a dream. No dream is never. Just a dream. No dream is Tears Such as Angels Weep by Chris Lester 
The snow has finally stopped falling by the time I crest the last ridge and look down at the mortal village below. The clouds have parted, and a blood-red moon glares down on the valley the way a man looks at something stuck to the bottom of his shoe. Little yurts and decrepit cottages cluster together alongside a fast-moving river, tendrils of smoke reaching up from chimneys and stovepipes. I smile with lips that aren't my own, as I imagine adding a few larger fires to the mix. My host's muscles are sore from four hours of cross-country skiing, and while I feel the pain, it isn't all that important, not compared to the quiet pleasure of the hunt, the satisfaction of having my prey within my sights. I reach into a vest pocket and pull out my heat vision binoculars. I feel ridiculous using them. Why should I need a mortal invention to see in the dark? But this body I wear still has its limitations. In my true form, I could have flown over the snow, instead of slogging through it like some spiritless mortal monkey. But the time isn't right yet. Though we've been free to manifest in this world again, the channel is still too narrow for us to shape bodies to our liking. Our link to the cosmic symphony is tenuous, our songs of creation and destruction limited in their power and effectiveness. Until we can change that, we're stuck using these mortal flesh bags for transportation. I'm right here, you know. My host's thoughts bubble up in our shared brain space, all annoyance and injured pride. He calls himself Michael. Like many things the mortals do, I find this both hilarious and unbelievably arrogant. Yes. Yes, you are. I say, forming the words with his own voice. And so am I. I raise the binocs to our eyes and look down at the village. The buildings glow softly against the cold background, and through the windows I can see mortals moving around inside them. Your kind wouldn't be here at all if it weren't for us, Michael reminds me, as if I need reminding. The Goetic Revolution opened the seals that kept you bound in darkness. You could at least show a little gratitude. I have to laugh at that. <laughs> Mike, my dear boy, who do you think you're talking to? My gratitude consists of the fact that you are living and breathing and will continue to do so as long as you are useful to me. It's a better deal than you deserve. The headcount is a bit uncertain from up here, but I can see enough warm bodies to know this is a real encampment, not a trap laid for hunters like me. I put away the binoculars and start down the ridge, moving cautiously so I don't set off an avalanche and break Michael's neck or something. I suppose I shouldn't be so hard on him. After all, he has a point. If humans hadn't been the short-sighted, egotistical creatures that they are, they never would have invented the goetic science that made it possible for us to re-enter their world. We left behind clues, of course. The secret wisdom we imparted to Solomon, before he betrayed and imprisoned us behind the very seals we had taught him to use. But the old sorcerer king was clever, and he added enough disinformation to the books to make sure no one else would ever be able to call on us again. At least, not until someone figured out how to blend occult secrets with modern quantum mechanics, rediscovering the knowledge that Solomon had done his best to bury. The monkeys never guessed that he might have had a good reason for doing it. It's been twenty years since the seals were opened, and we've made a pretty good showing, if I may say so myself. Little nuclear exchange in the Middle East has eliminated just about everybody who might have known how to put us back in our prison. 
the more enlightened countries of the world were all too willing to embrace goetic science with its amazing advances in technology. By the time we revealed ourselves as the power behind the magic, almost everyone with any money or power to speak of was already under our influence. There were the expected holdouts, most of Latin America, some parts of Africa, and here in the rural backwaters of the United States, but we're bringing them into line, slowly but surely. It's all a matter of finding the pockets of resistance and applying the right sort of leverage. Which is where Michael and I come in. Mike is ex-special forces, a natural outdoorsman and a tracker. And me? I've been a hunter since before the humans came down out of the trees. Oh, yes, and both of us are rather good at hurting people. When the Dukes needed someone to track down rebels in the American heartland, it was a match made in, well, someplace a lot warmer than this. I keep both Mike's human senses and my infernal ones sharp for signs of trouble as I approach the village. We're in the ass-crack of nowhere, high in the mountains of the Pacific Northwest. The snowstorms have grounded our planes and helicopters, and something is playing merry havoc with our satellites whenever they pass over here. GPS, sat phones, and songs of scrying are all equally useless. My job is to go in, find whatever's causing the problem, and remove it, the old-fashioned way. Well, sure, we could have just nuked the area, but that would fuck up the watershed for the whole SeaTac metropolitan area. Despite everything the mortals have done to it, this world is still a lot more pleasant than where we've been for the last 3,000 years, and we'd like to keep it that way. That ten-minute war between the Yids and the Towelheads screwed things up enough already, if you couldn't have guessed from the red-eyed moon and the ten-below temperature. The ridge turns into a gentle slope as it nears the ground, and I cut back and forth across the powder to keep from picking up too much speed. Skiing is not the stealthiest form of movement in the world, but it's a lot better than slogging around in two feet of snow. The snow itself absorbs the sound of everything around us, giving the village and the surrounding forest a hushed, watchful feeling. The peaceful air of the place sets my teeth on edge, and my hand itches to hold the assault rifle strapped to my back instead of these ski poles. Patience, I remind myself. A hunter must be patient. I circle slowly around the village at about a hundred yards distance, looking for the source of the interference that's causing us so much trouble. I don't see any radio transmitters or other obvious jamming equipment. There's something here, though. A half-remembered feeling just on the edges of my perception, like the tingling of an old scar. I move in closer, keeping to the shadows, all of our shared senses alert. The trap springs without a warning. Lines of blue-white fire erupt from the snow around me, wrapping around my host body like whipcords. Icy-hot agony fills my infernal senses, my spirit form writhing under Michael's skin, I try to sing, a dissonant chord that would let me cut free of the binding, but the enemy's song is too powerful, and it chokes off my access to the symphony. An enemy's song? Here? Before I can process the thought, a dart comes whistling out of the trees and strikes Michael in the throat. My host's body crumples, and as our vision goes dark, I see a figure in winter camo gear drop out of the trees and begin stalking toward me. Consciousness returns slowly. I'm not sure where I am, but it's warm, and I can hear a fire crackling close by. 
I'm lying on my back, spread-eagled, and whatever's underneath me is soft and comfortable. I try flexing Michael's arms and legs. They're tied down securely with what feels like leather straps. I've got maybe half an inch of slack in each one, no more than that. My weapons and other gear seem to be AWOL. I try singing again, but that damned binding still has me cut off from my power. I don't like this, a woman's voice says from somewhere nearby. Well, that's a sentiment I can agree with. We should just cast out the writer and put a bullet in his head. On second thought, maybe not. That wouldn't solve the problem. They'd just send someone else. The second voice also belongs to a woman, but she's definitely not local. British, maybe, or Australian. Somewhere that's not here, anyway. I don't recognize the voice, but something about it seems weirdly familiar. Won't they do that anyway? It's not like he's going to help us. We'll see about that. The first voice sputters for a second, and I can't blame her. Sarah, he's ridden. He's one of them. You can't seriously think for a minute he's going to... Child of Adam. The words are spoken quietly, but there's so much authority there that the monkey shuts up immediately. And then I recognize the music behind the voice, and this whole situation gets a thousand times more disturbing. I open my eyes and look around. I'm lying on a bed, of course, and I'm bound to the four posts of a wooden bed frame, one of the old oak ones that weigh about 500 pounds, none of that Ikea shit. They've stripped my host body down to the skivvies, and my hardware is nowhere in sight. Not that any of it would have made a difference. Not with her here. Her host body looks good bathed in firelight. Tall, slender, and athletic, with just enough tits and ass to make sure you know you're looking at a grown woman. Her close-fitting thermal body stocking shows off every line and curve. The face is lovely with a straight, slender nose, high cheekbones, and just a few lines around the eyes and mouth to show for her hardships. Her hair is a shocking white blonde, like an albino's, and her eyes are a sapphire blue deep enough to drown in. Michael's body approves of the view. My reaction is... more complicated, because I can see the spirit behind those eyes. She smiles, almost wistfully. Hello, Alastair. Mike's mouth has gone dry, and it takes me a moment to find our voice. Sir Raphael? I look up and down her host body again. You're, um... You're looking well? So are you. Her lip twitches at the corner, but just for a second. All things considered. Sarah's aide looks about ready to pop a blood vessel. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You know this guy? Sarah glances back briefly over her shoulder, then looks at me again. I did. Once. There's so much sadness there. In her eyes and in the music of her spirit. I want to reach out to her and comfort her. It's a feeling I haven't felt in aeons. Literally. The aide steps out of the shadows, glowering. She's hard everywhere Syra is soft, angular where Syra is rounded, and her dark eyes have the cold, hungry look of a predator. But he's working for the dukes now. He's ridden. Whatever he was before that makes him the enemy. Syra shakes her head. Alice, I don't know the host. I know him. She gestures at me. This is Alastair, the hunter. He was part of my choir. Alice's eyes widen a moment, then narrow to slits. She looks at me like she's trying to figure out the best place to start cutting. My respect for her goes up a little. 
Okay, so he used to work for you. So what? He's a traitor now. A demon. Why shouldn't we send him back to the abyss where he belongs? Sira says nothing. She closes her eyes, and a muscle jumps in the corner of her jaw as her body goes tense. She's about three seconds from slapping Alice. I know she'd feel horrible if she did that, so I decide to cut the monkey a break. You're talking about things you can't understand, Alice. Your poets wrote about a war in heaven, but it wasn't like that. Not a war with swords and shields and fights over territory. It was more like... I search for an analogy. Like a really awful divorce. Or if two Siamese twins started cutting pieces off each other. The spiritual essence of the entire fucking universe tore itself apart. You don't have words for that kind of pain. Alice looks thoughtful at that. Or as thoughtful as a monkey gets, anyway. But you fought and banished demons before, Sarah. What's different about this Alistair? Sarah looks up at me, her eyes bright with tears. Alice sees her expression and rocks back a step. Oh, shit. He was your lover, wasn't he? Shut up! I snap at her, suddenly furious. Don't you dare try to apply your little fleshbag labels to what we had! She gave me my music, Alice. We blended spirit. Compared to that, your pathetic monkey sex is about as intimate as living in the same zip code. Alastair, enough. Sira says. You said it yourself. She can't understand. Please, don't belittle her for it. Grudgingly, I nod. Sira puts her hand on Alice's shoulder. Would you give us some privacy, Alice? Alice looks back and forth between us and fidgets. Alice. Sira says. Her voice is gentle but earnest. Do you trust me? Alice looks at her for a minute, then takes a deep breath and nods. Yes, of course. Then please, let me speak to Alastair alone. I promise I will do nothing to endanger you or your people. Alice leaves. A gust of cold air rushes in when she opens the door. And a shudder runs through my host's body, the skin prickling into goosebumps. Sira clucks her tongue and throws a few blankets over me, then sits down on the bed beside me. I am sorry about this. She points to the straps tying me down. I can't exactly shrug, but I twitch my shoulders a little. Yeah, well, I came here trying to capture or kill your humans, so... She smiles bitterly. I should have known they'd send you. I didn't even know you were here. Brimstone, I didn't know you were on this planet. Sira shrugs. You didn't think you could conquer the humans and we'd just let it happen, did you? Not at first, I admit. But it's been twenty years, Sira. I figured if you were coming, Michael would have marched in with the host by now. <laughs> didn't you just chide Alice for taking the war in heaven too literally? Sure, but check it out. I nod down at my body. We made it literal. She sighs, running a hand absently over my chest. So you did. But if we showed ourselves openly, if we resorted to direct violence, the humans and everything else would be caught in the middle. The death toll would be unimaginable. I look at her seriously for a long moment. You really care about them, don't you? Yes. She says, simply. They're freaks, I say. Not spirit, but they've turned into something more than just matter. It's a perversion, a monster we should have strangled in the cradle. She reaches under my shirt and runs her fingers over Mike's chest. 
I can feel her spirit underneath the skin, and the touch of it sends an old ache through me. Do you really believe that? She asks gently. Or are you just repeating the party line? I start to deny it automatically, but something stops me. Maybe it's the feel of her host's skin against mine. Then I start to think about the things I've enjoyed since I started my little psychic joyride. The adrenaline rush of a halo drop. The happy, sore feeling of muscles after a good workout. The touch of silk and satin and leather. The taste of bacon cheeseburgers and good beer. Don't get me wrong. Being pure spirit has benefits that you monkeys can't even dream of. I wasn't blowing smoke up Alice's skirt when I told her about the intimacy I'd shared with Sir Raphael. But sometimes, having a mortal body is pretty bitchin' too. Syrah sees the admission in my eyes and smiles. She pulls back the covers and lies down half atop me, her cheek resting on my shoulder. Mike's shoulder? Fuck it, it's mine for the moment anyway. She runs her fingers over my face, tracing around my earlobe and down the line of my jaw. There's something tragically beautiful about these humans, Alester. They have such a tiny span of life, and they fill it to bursting with joy and sadness, love and loss, pleasure and pain. Their time is an instant, barely a grace note in the symphony. But they live, Alaster. By the stars, they live. I... Yes. Yes, they do. I normally pride myself on being a better conversationalist than this, but the feel of Sarah's body pressed up against mine is having some distracting side effects. She notices, and a playful smile crosses her lips. Well, well. What have we here? She reaches down and traces her fingers over the tent in my boxers. A shiver runs through my host's entire body, and Michael's cock grows suddenly, painfully hard. I thought that pathetic monkey sex didn't mean anything to you. <clears throat> well, it's <clears throat> the host, you know. All the physical appetites are still there. Hey, how did you get a host, anyway? Was it goetic science, or some kind of prayer ritual, or... Syrah pulls down the waistband of the underwear, wraps her hand around Mike's shaft, and squeezes. Don't try to change the subject now. <laughs> Wouldn't dream of it, I gasp. She runs her thumb around the base of the cock and cups my balls in her hand. Then she curls her fingers, lightly dragging her nails over the skin. Our spirits brush together wherever the skin touches, and I can feel our power vibrating in sympathy on old, familiar notes. At the same time, though, other notes jangle with dissonance. The places where my music changed when I left Sierra's choir. It's bliss and agony together, like tearing open stitches in the throes of orgasm. I feel like I can't bear it another second, and I never want it to stop, because it's her, here with me again. Sierra, I struggle against the restraints, suddenly afraid. Afraid that she's going to keep going, and even more afraid that she won't. But I'm bound up tight, body and spirit alike, and I'm not going anywhere until she releases me. There are a lot of reasons why the war in heaven happened. Part of it was about independence, about the freedom to create our own movements in the symphony. And part of it was about surrender, or rather the fear of doing so. Heaven was a place of hierarchy, of dominance and submission. 
Syra was the archangel of my choir. She gave me my music, and I followed her lead. My music, my spirit, my essence were hers to command. Do you have any idea how utterly terrifying that is? To put yourself completely in another's power? It's like having them hold you out over the edge of a cliff. I feared the loss of myself, my uniqueness, my own voice. I couldn't trust anyone that completely, not even Seraphiel. I ran away, but as much as it frightened me, as much as I rebelled against the whole idea of surrender, part of me hungered for it, burned for it every day of my exile. It was, after all, what I was made for. Syra opens her mouth and sings, calling up the notes that she wrote for me in the age before ages. Sympathy and dissonance war for control inside my spirit, pulling toward her, pulling away. The pain is unbearable. Sarah, I gasp as tears fill my host's eyes. I, I don't think I can do this. You can, she says gently. She takes her hand from my cock and unzips her body stocking, wriggling out of it with one impossibly smooth, elegant undulation. She straddles my waist, seating herself just in front of my shaft, and leans forward until we're face to face. The melody is still there, Al. I can feel it inside you. You just need to stop fighting it. I can't! She presses her lips to mine, kissing me like it comes naturally to her. A portion of her spirit comes with the kiss, mixing with mine and the pain and ecstasy amplify themselves a hundredfold. I find myself returning the kiss passionately, letting Mike guide our lips and tongue in the unfamiliar dance. We part after a brief eternity, and I gasp as the feeling of blissful torture eases. Relief and a terrible emptiness rush in as one. You can, Sarah says again. It's your choice, Al. It was always your choice. Don't you see that? You can be whole again. What freedom has your exile bought you, save the freedom to be less than you are? And why should someone else get to decide who I am? Worms and brimstone, I'm not giving up without a fight. An angel has his pride, after all. Syra kisses my brow, and then follows it with a line of kisses down my cheek and the line of my jaw. A star can't decide not to shine, Al. A tree can't decide to become a stone. Even the humans, with all their creative spark, are still limited by their own genetics. We all have our own parts to play in the symphony. She looks into my eyes with those incredible pools of blue. I can see the emotions playing out inside them. Hunger, desire, and a terrible longing. Your part is still waiting for you, if you'll have it. If you'll sing with me again. She puts her hands on my chest and pushes herself back grinding her hips against my crotch. She's soaking wet down there, and I feel her lips sliding up and down my cock, slicking it with her own juices. My host body is screaming to be inside her, and from the flush spreading over her breasts, I can tell she feels the same way. But she holds herself back, waiting, her eyes fixed to mine. I want to be with you again, Al. She says, her voice and breathing ragged. But it has to be your choice. I can't force you. And with that, I feel her binding slide away from me. I can sing again. And after taking one deep, trembling breath, 
I do. The first note comes out sharp, with a harsh, jagged edge that cuts across her spirit form like razor wire. A line of red opens on her host body's cheek and begins seeping blood. She raises a hand and touches the wound, looking down at the blood staining her fingertips, eyes wide. Worms! I try again, calling up a song of healing that's been sitting in an unused corner of my memory for ten thousand years. It's a simple song, and I manage to heal the cut, but it strains my spiritual voice to do it. I'm out of practice. Asira touches the cheek again and smiles. Thank you. I am... I'm sorry. The words feel strange on my lips. I feel something else, too. A tiny bit of pressure being released. Pressure I hadn't even realized was there. I forgive you. Sira lowers herself down and kisses me, slow and deep. It doesn't hurt as much this time. Here. Let me start and you follow. I just nod. She leans back and grinds against me again, getting me back to full hardness. She sings while she does it, the leading melody of the music she taught me. I join in with the harmony, submitting to her lead, and the tones ring out pure, clear, and sweet. The pain fades, and the pressure lessens even more. I want to say something, to tell her what I'm feeling, but neither of us will stop the song for anything now. She senses my agreement through our bond, my surrender, and she opens herself, body and spirit, and lets me in. I buck my hips and thrust inside her, driving my spirit deep into hers as our host bodies pant and writhe in ecstasy. Our thoughts and memories chase each other along the staves of the symphony, dancing along arpeggios and holding each other tightly across the fermatas. I can feel the ugliness inside me, the sorrow and destruction I've worked in the world, as I sought to write my own melodies without her. I see it all and feel ashamed. But I also feel her love wrapping around me, lifting me up, her forgiveness trying to free me of those burdens. I yield to her touch, to her music, and with two sharp notes she slashes apart the cords that held me down. I feel a sudden release, and my spirit soars in a crescendo alongside Seraphiel's. Our bodies are moving in unison, my hips thrusting upward as she rides me with reckless animal passion. Orgasms crash like cymbals and roar like timpani as our song reaches a sudden, thundering climax. And for a moment, time seems to stop, as matter and spirit alike are joined in the delights of two made one. Sira collapses atop me, our skin flushed and soaked with sweat. She releases my bonds with a few brief notes, and I wrap her in my arms, kissing her running my hands all over her beautiful human skin. She does the same, as our spirits sing the last lines of the song in pure, perfect unison. Sarah lets out a happy little sigh and relaxes against me. I knew you could do it, she murmurs. I smile and relax with her. Pulling the blankets up and over us, I wrap my arms around her and close my eyes. It all feels good and right and beautiful. It feels like heaven.
The last of the trucks is loaded by noon the next day. Give these humans credit. They've learned how to run an efficient operation. Most of them don't trust me to help, so I stay out of the way and watch as Sira and Alice coordinate their troops. Somebody brings me a thermos of coffee, and I sip from it between bites of my ration bar. As the trucks roll out, Sira comes back to join me in the center of the now-abandoned village. She sits down with me on the steps of the cabin where we spent the night together. The scry shield won't hold after I leave, she says. Alice will take them to the fallback site. Hasdiel is waiting for them. I'll catch up later. I nod. I hope your backup location is somewhere far away from here. Once the shield goes down, the dukes will scout everywhere within 200 miles trying to find them. I give her a sideways glance. And don't tell me where it is, either. Safer that way. She leans against me, resting her head on my shoulder. I know. I wish we didn't have to send you back into that... that snake pit. I smirk at her choice of metaphor. Hey, remember who you're dealing with here. Treachery and deception? Pretty much my game. I turn to face her and place a gentle kiss on her lips. Burn the place down when we leave. I'll tell him it was some technical gizmo that produced the shield. I'll keep the hunters off you for as long as I can. She takes my hand, squeezes it. They're going to catch on to you sooner or later. When that happens, I can't guarantee I'll be in a position to help. I know. But if Michael here is killed and I'm cast out of the world... I'll be there for you. Sarah says. I promise. I bow my head to her. And it feels comfortable and right, my lady. She puts her hand on my head, and I feel the warmth of her blessing rolling over me. My love. I take her hand and kiss it once, feeling the last brief mingling of our spirits. Then I stand, strap on my gear, and head off into the wilderness. Michael's voice stirs inside our shared head. Do you think we'll ever see her again? In that body? I doubt it. I suspect our career as a double agent will be as brilliant and effective as it is short. I pause a moment, then add, Is that all right with you, Mike, old boy? Not having second thoughts, are you? Michael smiles with our shared face. About helping her? Never. She's a hell of a woman. I let out a bark of laughter. Michael, my friend, that is about the single least accurate thing you could possibly have said about her. From up on the ridge, we watch as Seraphiel calls down fire and immolates the town. It's an impressive show, and a sobering reminder. As much as Syrah loves healing and peace and beauty, she can bring the wrath when she needs to. I watch the town burn, and for a moment I think of how I first imagined this scene filled with humans running and screaming in terror. It feels like I'm looking at a twisted reflection of myself. And, in a way, I suppose I am. Sira's song rises up from the valley, and my spirit sings back in reply. The sweet harmony of the songs reminds me of who I once was, who I may be again. I think of her forgiveness and her promise, and the tears spill unbidden from my eyes. Then I turn away, toward the west and the afternoon sun, as I begin the hunt for my redemption.
Podcasters all over the world are talking about Metamore City. You want to know about Metamore City? J. Daniel Sawyer, author of Predestination and Down from Ten. Take Blade Runner and Dark City. Now mix in The Wizard of Oz with a healthy dose of werewolves, private detectives, telepaths, vampires, demons, cops, criminals. Make everyone a shapeshifter. And then you begin to have an idea. Philippa Ballantyne, author of Chasing the Bard and Weather Child. In the layer cake of Metamore City, Chris Lester sets short stories and novels with a cast of characters that you'll fall in love with. Rick Stringer, creator of Variant Frequencies. Chris Lester has created a masterpiece here. It is one of the few podcasts that when I listen to it, I say to myself, I wish I had done that. Mer Lafferty, author of Heaven and Playing for Keeps. Metamore City is a horrific thrill ride. A gender-bending story of intrigue, betrayal, and love. It has entranced me, and it'll entrance you. If you like magic, darkness, and technology, this is the podcast novel for you. The voices are some of the best in podcasting, and the production is second to none. This podcast novel is both sexy and dangerous. Dark, beautiful, moody melodrama with a ubiquitous erotic edge and always a sense of wonder. Come here for yourself as the Parsec Award-winning Metamore City podcast begins its second spellbinding season. Subscribe in iTunes or visit metamorecity.com for more information. That's M-E-T-A-M-O-R city.com. You're gonna love it. Just a dream. That's all for this month. If you want to participate in what comes out of the Erotica a la carte kitchen, then go to eroticaalacarte.com and vote in the survey you find there. In this podcast, you've heard the voice work of Kimmy Alexander of The Guardian's podcast novel. You've also heard Kitka of their album The Vine, which is available at magnatune.com. Intro music was Overva by Hands Upon Black Earth from their self-titled album, which you can find at magnatune.com. If you want to find out more about me and my other writings, go to pjballantine.com. Erotica a la carte is released under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives License. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to seeing you again next month. Just a dream.